This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNXRadio.com studios in L.A. President Biden laying out his COVID-19 strategy today, promising increased vaccine production, distribution, but says yes, it's going to take some time. Comes after a CNN report that the administration inherited a mess from the Trump administration. No national coordination on vaccine distribution. They didn't leave them much of anything. So how does the new administration play catch up? When the next pandemic happens, we're going to think about that at some point, uh, will we be better prepared? We'll explore whether lessons from this one will be applied next time. And a test run in London is using tech to monitor the status of vulnerable people inside their homes. Can that save lives? We start, though, with the Biden administration and its strategies. Dr. Erwin Redlener, director of the Pandemic Response and Resource Initiative, professor of health policy at Columbia University Medical Center. I talked to him along with Chris Seedens, asking the doctor if he agreed with the president that this emergency needs to be treated like one and soon. Oh, yeah. And I've agreed, obviously, with that sentiment for many, many months, uh, watching in horror as the you know missteps and incompetencies and mistruths uh, were promulgated by the last administration were just kind of causing absolute chaos uh, with a very deadly uh, pandemic. So what is in here that you see that's going to be the biggest change? And I guess with a caveat of everything takes time when it comes to the federal government, this is like moving an oil tanker, right? This does not turn on a dime. Absolutely correct. And uh, in fact, that's you know, I've repeatedly said that as excited as I am about the new team on, on the field right now to deal with COVID, and they are spectacular, I must say, uh, they're also not a magic bullet. This is not going to get, uh, you know, eradicated, uh, you know, tomorrow or anytime soon. In fact, Ron Klain, the president chief of staff, said a few days ago that we can expect within the next 100 days a uh, you know, uh, about 500,000 total fatalities from this disease. And I'm saying within the next 200 days, we'll see well over 600,000 cumulative deaths. So uh, what we do see, though, on the other hand, is a very focused, incredibly detailed effort by, uh, you know, real experts in the field, not just medical and public health experts, but also logistic experts to make sure that we get the vaccine out there, that we fulfill the uh, Biden promise of 100 million uh, doses given um, within the first 100 days. I do think it's possible. I didn't necessarily think that a few weeks ago, but I think it's very feasible right now. And uh, the other thing is people don't realize that Joe Biden is a very serious player. He does not uh, deal well with nonsense, procrastination, failure to get a mission done. In other words, once he's gotten uh, advised by the experts about what's possible and how it needs to get done, that's it. That's the mission. And people need to fulfill that. So it's a very empathetic guy, a very nice guy, but uh, really unyielding in his focus on what the mission is that needs to get accomplished right now. Doctor, let's dig a little deeper to this goal of 100 million doses in the first 100 days he's in office. Yeah. Uh, he, he said th- this morning that the rollout of the vaccine so far has been a dismal failure. What has yeah. to be done? Where do we have to go to get to get 100 million doses in 100 days? Yeah, so uh, I was uh, somebody who's one of my colleagues was asking me actually earlier today, um, what's the issue that is, is holding up the vaccine administration? And I said, first thing I said was it's not an issue, it's issues, plural. 
because it starts with the manufacturer, and that's been slower than uh, anticipated. <clears throat> and it's not just manufacturing the vaccine. They need to put it in vials. They need to buy those vials, have them available. They need to have the syringes. They need to have the labels. All of these little pieces are meaningful when we're trying to rush something uh, to market, so to speak. And then the states are in desperate need of resources, personnel, and other support uh, from the federal government to help make sure that they are able to distribute it and then get people actually vaccinated. And then we have this massive problem of trying to convince people who are so-called vaccine hesitators or vaccine resistant to kind of come around because we need uh, almost everybody vaccinated to get the herd immunity that we all need. So um, there are many, many steps along the way, including, by the way, which has been very interesting, a, uh, a lot of confusion in uh, terms of the priority category, so who's going first, when's, when's the second group going, et cetera. And that's caused some uh, chaotic messaging and delays in the vaccine administration as well. So all of these things, it's not like I'm, this is a menu and you get to choose one or two things <laughs> to tackle. It all has to be tackled simultaneously. It's obviously a big challenge. Dr. Erwin Redliner directs the Pandemic Resource Response Initiative, Professor of Health Policy Management, Columbia University Medical Center. It was a year ago that the first case of COVID was found in the U.S. Fast forward to now, more than 400,000 Americans have died. So what have we learned, not just us, but around the world, the governments? Dr. Dennis Carroll, board chair of the Global Virome Project. Chris and I talked to him about that exact question. What have we learned? Well, first off, it's, it's great to be with you again. Um, the fundamental message is we should really understand that a global event like a pandemic requires a coordinated global response. And we've not only, um, as you noted earlier, uh, failed miserably in our response within the US, but we've also failed as a member of the global community. And this is not simply an event within the US. It is something that is quite frankly, devastating both the health and the economies of um, people everywhere. And so I would hope the first take home message we get out of here is uh, we need to understand we're part of a, a global community when we're faced with a global event of this kind. Will we be better prepared, though, next time around? Well, let, let me be frank. Um, quite, we, we were quite prepared. We've spent um, over the last 15 years, a significant effort, both within the United States and working with our partners around the world, um, to really anticipate an event exactly like uh, COVID-19, um, a respiratory virus that would emerge somewhere and begin spreading. Um, and we knew what to do, and we had put in place uh, good measures to respond to it. So it wasn't a matter of not having preparedness plans, it was the execution. We had absolute miserable leadership. It was failed leadership that really was the most significant problem. Um, so no matter how good our plans are, if we don't have leadership at the top, really enabling leadership throughout the system at the state and uh, community level, we will get what we have today. Um, a situation which is largely out of control. And we're really hoping and praying that we can get a vaccine into every arm at the earliest possible date. There's a second part to that, right? First is the, the knowledge you can have it, but you got to put it into practice. The second is just the timing of what you do. You've got, what, a few months of really good public support. And we remember back in the early days when everything was shut down for the first time, 
Uh, and then people start to get fatigued, which is natural, and you try and fight it, and we hope we do, but it's eventually going to happen. Well, you started the program off by noting that today is the first anniversary of the very first reported case in the United States. We knew about this virus uh, three weeks earlier. Um, the fact is we didn't begin acting on it until early March. So we didn't take advantage of the very earliest warnings to begin um, mobilizing our response, both in terms of you know, making sure hospitals had the appropriate supplies, uh, but also that the communities understood what they should be doing. And a lot of conflictive messaging went out, as you know. And I think that not only did we have uh, very poor compliance with what we know for practices that will save lives, but part of that was because the messaging that went out in the beginning um, was very conflictive and confused a lot of people. And so we, we have to not only take advantage of the earliest signal, not wait two months before we start to act, but we also have to have real clarity in what we say, how we say it, so that people don't get confused about what are the best practices that they should be taking. Yeah, we've had mask mandates here, but not there. We've had mayors suing some governors over mask usages because they've wanted to have mask uh, wearing mandated in their cities. But the governors, I'm thinking of Florida off the top of my head, saying no. Uh, different approaches to restaurants, to stores. I, I guess so, so many of us see the, the major problem that it was so scattered, the approach. Every state, every uh, city, uh, county taking on a different approach rather than a, a good coordinated response. Absolutely. And I think what's really heartening is um, immediately following yesterday's swearing in of President Biden, uh, he began issuing executive orders uh, yesterday and today that really signal um, that this administration is committed to establishing a clear national way forward, um, both in terms of uh, what the science says, but it's also about how best to work with and coordinate with governors and sub-state uh, partners. Uh, and, and that was something that did not happen in the previous administration. It was largely Washington um, not taking responsibility uh, for helping states to think through what were the best things to do and then provide the resources and the support to enable them to do it. So I think uh, we've turned a corner on that, and I'm very hopeful um, that we're at least finally getting leadership a year into this pandemic. Um, but it may be late, but the fact of the matter is it's still urgently needed. In terms of the next bug, whenever it gets to us, 10, 20, 50, 100 years, who knows? COVID contagious, COVID deadly, but they can get way worse than this, right? Well, you know, what we planned for prior to COVID-19 was something we referred to as disease X. And we modeled it um, as one that would be potentially as transmissible as we found with COVID-19, but far, far deadlier. We have ample examples of viruses circulating in nature um, that were they to make their way into the human populations would be far, far more deadly uh, than what we have with COVID-19. Uh, by way of example, the 1918 influenza pandemic that we talked about uh, was 10 times deadlier uh, than what we have with COVID-19. And we have examples of other viruses that, quite frankly, instead of, you know, one or two percent 
um, mortality, we're looking at 75% mortality. So this is a very dangerous uh, situation we're in, but is by far, uh, in a way, not the most dangerous. And so there will be, this is really people need to appreciate, um, this uh, emergence of this virus is not unexpected. Um, we knew it would come. We didn't know where and exactly when, but we also know there will be another virus sooner than later, uh, and it could be far deadlier than this virus. So we need to take every opportunity to learn from the mistakes we made, and we've made many mistakes, but we also have the ability to really do the right thing. And in anticipation of the next one, we need to be really thoughtful and build a much better arsenal, not just of an excellent playbook, but really ensuring we get the kind of leadership that will execute in a timely and effective way and bring every community uh, into the same strategy and get us all on the same page. So we don't have what has been a very fractious and unfortunately very politicized um, response to this particular uh, virus. Dr. Dennis Carroll, board chair, Global Fibrome Project. Technology could help save lives for some of the most vulnerable people when they're home. If they get sick with COVID, no one's around to help them. So sensors can let loved ones know if they need to do something. USA Today tech life columnist Jennifer Jolly talks to WBBM's Cisco Cotto in Chicago about a test run that's taken place in London. Well, they're basically high-tech sensors that can know and notify either caregivers or loved ones if, say, a senior citizen takes a fall, if they fail to open the refrigerator for a certain amount of time, if they open the front door and potentially don't return. So these are high-tech monitors really with the idea of helping people who are uh, in public housing and among the most vulnerable. And so what do these look like? I mean, are, we, are they uh, uh, lights? Are they something that gets hung on the ceiling? Are they, I mean, what, what does it look like in the house, have they said? Well, they, they aren't talking about this specific data trial in London using the tech monitors. They're not saying whether these are cameras, whether they're sensors, but this is not new. We've had specific kinds of Bluetooth-connected sensors, Wi-Fi-connected sensors. I just wrote about Nobi, this new lamp that it looks like a gorgeous kind of high-end ceiling lamp that can detect everything um, with artificial intelligence from, you know, it knows the difference between a senior sitting on a couch versus falling down and not getting up. So, and, and that reminds me, Cisco, you know, ever since the I've fallen and I can't get up two decades ago kind of technology We've been working on and trying to refine this tech. The big issues now, of course, are privacy concerns and how to do it in a way that's safe, not too intrusive, but also helps the one in five people expected to be over a senior citizen age by 2030. Yeah, privacy issue, it's always the thing that comes up because people wonder what exactly is whatever the tech company is that's running this. What are they doing with the data that they're gathering? Well, that is always a concern, whether it's your Amazon Alexa devices now, the ubiquitous use of cameras, voice monitoring equipment in the home environment. These are privacy concerns that can have an impact on physical and mental health the same way trying to age in place can. So that's what the tech community is really tasked with figuring it out. And a lot of this technology in the form of 
sensors is already being used in um, home facilities, senior care facilities. That is Jennifer Jolly. Always appreciate her being with us. Short break, and then does it really have to be so hard to make a healthcare website? We have been talking a lot about L.A. County lately on this podcast um, because where we are is a hotbed for COVID. They've opened up the vaccinations for those 65 plus, but as we've told you, it's been hard to get an appointment. The website crashes, people can't get through, and this has happened before. This happens in other cities, other counties. It happened with the healthcare.gov site years ago. Why does it have to be so hard? Sha Wang is co-founder and CEO of Nava Public Benefit Corporation. He was on the team of designers that helped to rehabilitate and rescue the Affordable Care Act website. Chris and I talked to him about why it's so challenging to get this right the first time. You know, I think the folks on the civil servant side, uh, no one wants these websites to not work. Uh, no one's in this to uh, build, uh, build a service or build a program that, uh, that is not able to actually deliver on their promises. Uh, but I think there has been, I think, a history and a pattern uh, of these types of failures, uh, and they've been uh, a result of uh, an underinvestment, both, I think, in technical capacity uh, in these agencies, uh, in these counties, um, uh, as well as uh, a kind of brittleness uh, of how these uh, how these programs are designed. Yeah, we got a couple uh, think, problems, right? Because number yeah, one is yeah. what you mentioned that the servers can't handle the millions of people who all at you know five thirty when they hear the news go and try and sign up for things. But then there's the other issue of when people are clicking around. I mean, we've heard here plenty of times. Some people find it like it's a breeze; they get through. It's easy. Just click here, go to the bottom of the page, whatever. Other people just can't quite figure it out because it's not yeah. really native. You know, you've got to search for your appointments. You've got to click. You've got to drag the map around. Some people in that age group, they don't want to do that. Why can't there just be some portal where I put in my zip code and it sends me to the nearest site? <laughs> I mean, it's like we haven't thought through all the steps of this in a way that would make it as easy as possible. Yeah, I agree. And I think, uh, I mean, you know, this has been part of the conversation since uh, since COVID hit, uh, hit the U.S., right? Is that the vaccine distribution effort is going to be a monumental one. So these were not challenges that uh, should be a surprise uh, to government agencies. Um, I, I do think there has been a real failure in terms of federal level leadership, uh, in terms of setting standards uh, around data, setting standards around guidance uh, for how uh, how these things can be distributed and how these experiences can be uh, can be kind of made more unified. I mean, poking around on the LA County side. Um, you know, as I think you mentioned, that there some of these things are redirecting to all sorts of different vendors, all sorts of different experiences. Uh, it can be incredibly confusing, and that confusion results in people not getting um, access to the vaccines that they're eligible for, uh, or it results in huge costs in terms of folks hitting call centers, huge wait times, and things like that. You mentioned a moment ago underinvestment and brittleness. That begs the question, yeah. just how difficult will it be getting the, the website like this, this, this mess of a website, cleared up? I mean, I'll say, I think, I mean, uh, as a Southern California kid uh, who, who also spent a lot of time in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley, um, th these are not, uh, these are not, uh, these are not unique problems. Um, serving, serving websites that allow for millions of people to access them, uh, these are solved problems. Um, the, the tech side isn't the hard part and, and cost, frankly, isn't the issue in these cases. Um, the, the work uh, or the challenges oftentimes are uh, the kind of siloing um, 
uh, or, uh, or layers, uh, uh, layers of complexity on the program side, um, or, or policies put in place that are uh, designed to, uh, you know, prevent fraud or prevent, uh, prevent risk, uh, but are actually causing uh, more barriers to access in, in what is a crisis scenario. Are we also just not using the guys like you? I mean, I've seen so many tweets going, we have Silicon Valley, why don't we bring them in to design something for mm -hmm. us? And we could have done it six months ago. Here's the portal, everybody use it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, California is not for lack of talent, right? Um, I think there's, uh, in terms of these types of things, like, uh, frankly, this, this lack of federal leadership has really caused a kind of cascading effect, right, where counties shouldn't be needing to fend for themselves uh, to figure out how they're going to build this from scratch or who they're going to need to tap. Um, so I think there's, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of good and important uh, and critical work to be done. There's uh, hopefully a lot of folks now in the, uh, in the tech industry who are asking how they can help. And, and my perspective, having worked on you know, healthcare.gov in those early days and now working with government for the past few years, there's so much more important work to be done here. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot of accountability that needs to be demanded on the government side on the outcomes uh, that they should be expecting from their vendors, from these health insurance programs, from these people that are contracted out to actually uh, deliver deliver websites, but are uh, but are just kind of um, delivering incredibly brittle uh, and incredibly broken systems. Sha Wang, co-founder, COO, Nava Public Benefit Corporation. Please get on your laptop and help us. There is a new study that offers some hope for those in nursing homes. Eli Lilly, the drug maker, says its antibody drug can prevent illness among residents and staff of nursing homes and other long-term care centers. It says participants who got the drug had up to a 57% lower risk of getting COVID. Among nursing home residents only, there was up to an 80% reduction in risk. 80% U.S. regulators last year allowed emergency use of the treatment for mild or moderate cases that don't require a trip to the hospital. Find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and stay well.